Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States intelligence community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this episode, we are joined by April Falcon Doss. April spent over a decade at the National Security Agency. While there, she managed counterterrorism programs and technology innovation efforts held a posting as an overseas foreign liaison officer, and served as the Associate General Counsel for Intelligence Law. She left NSA to go into private practice, where she chaired the cybersecurity and privacy practice for a major U.S. law firm. She also served as Senior Minority Counsel for the Russia Investigation in the United States Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. She is currently the executive director of the Institute for Technology, Law, and Policy at Georgetown University, and she's the author of the book, Cyber Privacy, Who Has Your Data and Why You Should Care. April, we're so happy for you to join us today. Thanks for being here. Megan, thank you. This is such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we're just going to kick this off by having you share a bit about why you decided to join the intelligence community. Was this something you always knew you wanted growing up in the DMV area? You know, I honestly had no idea, which is funny because, you know, I grew up in Baltimore, not far from Fort Meade, and really had no awareness of the NSA. Um, What changed that for me was two things. One was a little bit of serendipity of geography. Um, By around the year 2000-ish, I was living in the suburbs of Baltimore, not far from where Fort Meade was. And we just had, you know, friends and acquaintances who who worked at no such agency and were kind of cagey about what (laughs) they did. And, oh, I work at the Department of Defense, you know. (laughs) Um, And then then 9-11 happened, you know, and, and like a lot of people, I'll I'll never forget where I was on 9-11. I was in the hospital. Um, Our second child had just been born. And uh, I had a phone call from a relative asking me if I had the TV on. I said, of of course not. (laughs) She said, April, turn on the TV. A plane just hit the World Trade Center towers in New York. And, um, you know, I was I was in a transition time where um, I was, you know, home for for maternity leave. And as it became time to think about returning to work, I thought, you know, if I can do something that's in service of our country, that's an honorable thing to do. And um, so the, the, that thought kind of combined with the, the serendipity of geography to make applying to NSA a natural choice. Um, but if you'd asked me growing up, I, this was nowhere on my radar screen. Wow. So... Once you arrived there, what was your first job? You know, what did you do when you first arrived at NSA? And how did you move through your career over the 13 years you were there? 
when I first arrived, I had a fabulous job. So I'm, I'm a lawyer by training. I had been through law school. I had been practicing law. But at the time, NSA wasn't hiring any lawyers from the outside. What they were hiring for was a policy officer. And um, so when I started, I was a, a policy officer for just sort of general things at NSA. And because of the timing, I got to work immediately on interagency working groups dealing with the information sharing challenges um, post 9-11. This was when the 9-11 Commission was doing their work, trying to understand could the intelligence community have foreseen the 9-11 attacks. Um, and there was a really tremendous effort across all of the components of the intelligence community to look at what kind of reforms might need to be um, undertaken in that regard. So worked as a policy officer, um, got immediate exposure to counterparts, um, you know, across the DOD and IC, worked on things like um, the standup of the Director of National Intelligence Office under the Intel Reform Act as part of the community conversations around what should that office look like? What should that DNI function do? And, um, and also in, along the way, got to um, manage some counterterrorism information sharing programs because it was all about information sharing. How can the IC do better the things that it was already doing um, and make sure that there was all the right protection of sources and methods and sensitive information while also um, making that critical intelligence or information available to everybody who needed it. Um, so it was a fabulous job. That was my first introduction to the IC. So you you did a little bit of policy, then you helped, you know, do this information sharing and stand up what is now the ODNI. You know, while you were there, what would you say the best job was um, while you were there? What What really excited you while you were at the NSA? Oh my gosh, so much. You know, it was funny. So I still remember getting my first uh, security read-in and um, it all felt a little bit surreal, to be honest. And, and as soon as I had had that security read-in and I started to become exposed to the breadth of programs and opportunities at NSA, I thought, you know what, if I ever get bored here, shame on me, because <laughs> there was so much interesting work happening everywhere. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, I got to serve as a foreign liaison officer. So we lived overseas as a family for three years, um, working with one of our counterpart intelligence agencies. That was a fabulous experience. And one that I probably wouldn't have had if I had been in the private sector. And it was really satisfying working in the general counsel's office, um, trying to make sure that all of NSA's activities were being carried out in ways that was faith that were faithful to um, all of the expectations around privacy and civil liberties and protection of rights and um, meeting our oversight and compliance obligations. I think one of the jobs that was most fun was um, when I was managing technology programs and we were trying to develop a framework for vetting of cloud-based analytics and how do you do big data and AI and all the things that are in everybody's consciousness now, NSA was doing sort of doing some really cutting edge work in, in those areas. And it was really such a pleasure to be part of it because it was such a creative challenge to try to marry up interdisciplinary perspectives 
around these complex issues of technology and intelligence operations and really important legal constraints and privacy and compliance obligations. It was like putting together this great big multidimensional puzzle and doing it with a team of just brilliant and dedicated colleagues. And I, I think as I'm talking, I think my favorite thing about working there was being immersed in an environment where there were so many truly brilliant colleagues that I worked with, all with such dedication to not only carrying out the agency's mission, but doing it the right way, doing it in ways that um, that um, that were honorable, consistent with the law, tied to policy, all of those things. Just uh, being immersed in that environment was, um, well, like I said, it, it. I knew there was no reason ever to get bored. I love that answer. You know, it sounds like you had a great breadth of opportunity um, to do different things while you were at the NSA. And so I wonder, you know, what did, and I guess what does even now success look like for you in your career? Because it sounds like you tried a lot of different things, which is exciting, but not everyone does that, right? Sometimes they take this path and they don't deviate from it. Um, and what are some of the things you're most proud of during your time there? Gosh, those are great questions. So first, what does success look like? I think it I think it really has to do with being true to your own ideals and your own um, passions and values. And so for me, one of the things that uh, you know I've, I've come to learn about myself is I have a really low threshold for boredom. <laughs> I like to be doing work that's interesting and it's energizing. I like to do work that feels like it has a purpose and a significance and is in service of some larger goal. Um, I love to be able to work collaboratively. And in my case also, I really love finding work that allows me to do that in ways that are sort of in balance or in harmony with other aspects of life as well. And so, um, you know, one of the things I love about this podcast is I love hearing all of these stories about how people navigate their careers. And, um, and in my case, navigating the career was really not about how quickly can I become a senior executive? Or, you know, how is this going to look on my resume? It was really about um, how can I be helpful? How can I do interesting work? How can I do it in ways that um, create the time and space for other obligations and commitments in life at each of the stages of life? So that's another long answer um, to a really simple question. <laughs> no, it's not at all. I think that's a, a that's a wonderful answer. So if you could pick one, what would be the one thing you were most proud of while you were there? Oh, golly, that's hard. But I, I think I'd have to say it would go back to that technology program, because at the time we were working on this process for vetting cloud analytics, um, this was early in the days of migration of IC data into cloud-based environments. Of course, now we all hear about, you know, the ICIT enterprise and big, you know, kind of programs. This was much earlier days than that. And, um, at the time, it was still the case that probably the most cutting edge work that I had seen in how to handle data responsibly, big, unstructured, complicated data with lots of different 
rules and requirements and obligations and constraints associated with it. By, the, by far the most complex work that I had seen was happening, um, not in the private sector where we see so much of that work happening today, but in contexts like the work we were doing at NSA. And so being able to pull together that team and tackle this question of how do we ensure legal policy and compliance vetting of cloud-based analytics in a way that is consistent with the technology needs, that's going to fit mission operations, that's going to meet privacy and compliance requirements, that's going to be scalable um, and can move at a pace for um, mission requirements was just such a complicated problem to tackle. And um, the solution was one that worked well, was scalable, was really creative. And I know this is the nerdiest thing in the world. I can't believe I'm even trying to describe this. It's hard for me to put into words what a deep passion I felt for doing that work. And um, so there were lots of things that were satisfying. Satisfying to be part of important, you know, counterterrorism operations, satisfying to be helping enable important, you know, cybersecurity related missions, lots of things. Um, but that was in its own way, really novel work. And, um, you know, because you get to have these conversations, you know, with all of your guests, it's, it's hard to talk externally about the work that happens in the IC. But I will just say the opportunities for creative, collaborative, interdisciplinary, interagency work um, just are nearly endless. And, and every time I got a chance to work on that kind of project, it was just so, so satisfying. So before we move on um, post NSA, I'd really love to hear uh, if you could debunk some of the misconceptions or the myths of the NSA or the no such agency. Yeah, so um, it's such a great question. And you know, when I got there, I didn't know much about it at all. Um, so it was kind of a blank slate to me. What I did know was what I had seen in movies like Enemy of the State. <laughs> Right. And <laughs> so I can assure you that NSA is not uh, redirecting satellites to target anybody running through the tunnels in DC. <laughs> um, no, really, I think that's the biggest misconception. I think there's this idea that NSA behaves lawlessly and hoovers up all the data. And that was absolutely not my experience there. My experience and observation there is that the work that NSA does is really hard to do. Um, it is really hard to get right because it's complex work. And so certainly um, there are times when compliance mistakes get made and those get reported up through all the chains of the overseers. And of course, we see a lot more of that information publicly now with um, the transparency initiatives of the last few years. Um, but I never saw people, um, you know, sort of cavalierly trying to circumvent the law. I never saw people overreaching intentionally. Um, there's a lot of NSA programs that have been controversial, but by and large, those programs were also approved at higher level right. levels of government or by different branches of government. You know, So something like the bulk metadata program, very controversial, was approved dozens of times by different federal judges. So 
when when somebody criticizes that saying it's unlawful, well, actually, a whole lot of federal judges said it was lawful. Um, there's a really important policy debate to be had about whether it should have been, and, and the law has since been changed, and now that's done differently, and those debates are really, really important. Um, but that idea that NSA is acting you know, recklessly and just scooping up all the information about everybody, that was never my experience at all. Really the opposite was true. So I wanna switch gears a little bit, and you, know, you are a trained lawyer. Um, can you tell us a bit about how you started working more on the technology side, how you kind of made that that leap, and why this area of the law is interesting to you? So, <laughs> funny story. Um, so I was in a, a staff meeting in the OGC, uh, the NSA General Counsel's office, um, back in about 2005 or so. Uh, somebody said, well, you know, there's going to be some technology modernization initiatives at NSA, and uh, we need somebody, a lawyer on staff to kind of be the point person for that. And everybody in the room looked at their shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, I don't know, that might be kind of fun. I was a history major. What do I know? Um, and so really, I ended up working on that, starting to work on that by default, and um, very quickly found it fascinating, learned all about um, computer science and engineering and telecommunications and, and all of the challenges of what is our global internet and telecom network today. And, um, and found that it was fascinating to me. Loved being able to work with lots of really smart computer scientists, mathematicians, engineers, and others who could explain things to me um, repeatedly until I understood them. <laughs> And I'd say, okay, let me repeat this back. And can you break that down into right. just a couple <laughs> syllables? And, um, but I think to me, what's so fascinating about it is, you know, technology has been leaping forward so quickly in the last several decades that technology is changing far faster than law is, far faster than policy is. And when I was in NSA, the big challenge around that was how do you take laws that were written you know, maybe like FISA written in the 1970s originally, um, and apply language from that statute to the modern internet environment. There's, right. there's not a perfect translation to make there. The law wasn't written with that in mind. Um, and that area is still so intriguing to me because now we see it in our everyday lives. I mean, you know, if you think about um, the way that social media and platforms and smartphones have transformed everyday life for all of us around the globe. Um, law and policy still aren't keeping up. And so I find that a really interesting and a really challenging set of work, trying to help harmonize that, figure out how to modernize rules in a way that makes sense with technology. So, you know, you also spent some time on the Hill working on election security issues. Can you share a few stories with us from your time there? And how did that happen? Yeah, so um, I had the privilege of serving as the senior minority counsel uh, on the Senate Intelligence Committee for the Russia investigation. And when I started work on that, um, it was in early 2017. It was 
before James Comey had been fired as the FBI director. It was before um, Robert Mueller's Office of Special Counsel appointment had happened. Um, and all that sort of the public knew at the time was that there were serious concerns about Russian interference with the 2016 election. The IC had put out an unclassified summary report to that effect the previous fall. And, uh, and the Senate Intelligence Committee was launching this bipartisan review of, of what had happened and, and what might need to be done going forward. And um, in some respects, it, it felt very similar to the look back that the IC was doing post 9-11, trying to sort of do that uh, dissection of what had happened, articulating lessons learned, figuring out how to go forward. Um, I have to say, you know, my hat is off full credit to uh, Chairman Richard Burr, Vice Chairman Mark Warner. Um, their commitment to bipartisanship on that committee was absolutely um, what underpinned the success of that committee's work. Um, the committee ultimately came out with a five volume report that talked about everything from um, the ways that the Russian intelligence services were using social media to influence U.S. Uh, domestic partisan politics to um, election security hacks, uh, you know, attacks on registration databases and vulnerabilities of vote counting machines to the counterintelligence pieces, attempts to um, sort of uh, cultivate relationships with key figures in, in the U.S. Um, it was an extraordinarily wide reaching investigation and really good work came out of it. I think that um, the feature that made it really successful was that commitment to bipartisanship, especially for an investigation that had the potential to be so politically fraught. Um, bipartisanship is not always an easy thing to achieve, but in the national security context, it's critical. Um, Absolutely. You know, and uh, I mean, ideally, national security work can be truly nonpartisan, right? Um, but it has to be bipartisan. You know, the, the nation's adversaries are all beyond U.S. shores, right? Um, and but we knew that 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 um, investigation was going to be hard to carry out in a bipartisan way. As I mentioned in your bio, you wrote a book about cyber privacy. Could you share with us a teaser about the book and why cyber privacy is important to you? Yeah, so um, I wrote the book with the idea that you shouldn't have to be an expert to understand what happens to your data. And the genesis for it was you know, in about 2015 or 16, I was doing um, a lecture to an IC officers class and I was talking about the history of electronic surveillance and the laws governing collection of communications in the US and how they had changed over time and, um, and the way that laws don't keep up with, policy, uh, with technology very well. And after the class, somebody came up to me and said, you know, you should write a book about that. And I thought, Huh, really? Maybe I could write a book about that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, so then I come out into the private sector, and I'm and I'm working as a lawyer doing cybersecurity and privacy. I'm advising companies on privacy regulations. I'm looking at what is a privacy violation and artificial intelligence, and you know all these things. And 
I realized, you know, I have been working full time on issues relating to privacy and technology, you know, for 20 years. And it's hard to wrap our heads around how quickly all this changes. Mm -hmm. um, and it shouldn't have to be hard. You know, when you think about it, Facebook just launched in 2004. The first smartphone came out in 2007. If you had asked any of us 15 or 20 years ago, would we expect there to be social media platforms that know our personalities better than our family members do or that predict our behavior? We probably would have said no, right? If we had, if somebody had asked us 15 years ago, do we expect to have, you know, precision real-time geolocation going on all the time because mm -hmm. of the smartphones in our pockets? We probably would have said no. I mean, it just, we weren't thinking about those things. And so today, everything from facial recognition technology on street cameras and drones used for, you know, police surveillance and crowd control to social media searches at the border to um, the use of, um, the use of apps on phones for employers to monitor what their workers are doing or proctoring software for teachers to watch students take their exams at home, um, you know, biometrics, DNA, gate recognition, um, all these things. There's been such an explosion of data. Um, I thought, okay, we all live in this data intensive world. There's huge benefit to be had from data driven apps and devices and services. We all love the convenience and the productivity and all of that, but it shouldn't be hard for people to make choices they're individually comfortable with about whether or not they want to have a digital assistant sitting on their desk, listening to their calls, waiting for a wake word, <laughs> right? Or right. whether or not they're concerned about the use of digital assistants in class for their preschoolers, or whether they're concerned about revenge porn or deep fakes, or know what to do if somebody installs stalkerware on their phones. So with all of that in mind, I set out to write this book and, um, so it's called Cyber Privacy. The subtitle is Who Has Your Data and Why You Should Care. And the book starts with just an overview of these major types of data. And then it tries to walk through. Here's what the big tech platforms do with data. Here's what else happens in the private sector in employment and education and personal relationships um, when data is used for, um, for kind of increasing leverage or power differentials. Here's what governments in the US and around the world do with data. I try really hard not to, um, not to um, articulate what I think are specific answers around where the slider should be set between mm -hmm. privacy and other values like privacy and innovation, privacy and security, privacy and you know um, all these other things. But I really want to make sure that people can make those choices for themselves based on what their values and priorities are. And um, 
So that's, that's, what, um, that's what prompted the book. I am so excited. Okay, I just have to say this. I know this is really uh, kind of bragging for a minute, but I'm so excited. It's been nominated for a bunch of awards um, from the American Bar Association, from uh, the, a separate set of awards uh, for books published by independent and small presses. So it's, it's gotten really... Um, terrific reception so far and I well you should be excited helped. that's wonderful congratulations yeah. that's really wonderful yeah thanks so it, it leads me I guess to the next question you know you've already had this amazing career so what's next for you and how do you feel your time in the IC prepared you to take on whatever is next so um, I've just stepped into a new role as um, at Georgetown, as you mentioned, as the executive director for the Institute for Technology Law and Policy. I'm super excited about it because it's all the issues that I really um, care about and have been working in. But I would say, you know, winding back um, to early in my career, I would never have imagined this was the path I would take. Uh, when I was in law school, like cybersecurity law wasn't even a thing, you know, it didn't exist, right? Um, just like a lot of these technologies didn't. And, um, and I, I think that the, the experiences and values that working in the IC can really foster and support um, have served me really well in a lot of different walks of life. And, um, First, I have to say, you know, as I mentioned, my career has been a bit of serendipity at a whole bunch of points along the way. Um, for me, that's been okay. That has been absolutely fine. It's worked out well. And I, have, and I found that um, the IC was a great place to work when I was more junior and needed flexibility to work part-time. I had young kids. I wanted to spend time with them. Um, had great career opportunities. Um, as I became more senior, and I was working full time and more and jobs that expected longer hours that came at times that worked in terms of my overall life balance. So my experience with the IC has been really great place for all that. But more than anything, the skills around critical thinking and uh, constantly learning new information constantly adapting to a changing global environment, having awareness of what's going on in the broader world, um, having the, the cultural facility that goes along with being attuned to global events and maybe having an overseas posting and doing all those things, working with really um, diverse teams that include interdisciplinary diversity and also, you know, gender and ethnicity and, you know, other kinds of diversity, all of those things, um, I think, make a great platform for developing the kind of skills and aptitude to be able to work anywhere else in the world, too. Um, and my experience was that I wasn't at all um, pigeonholed or stuck in doing something that was no longer of interest to me. I, I know sometimes people worry like, oh, if I go into the IC, like, am I gonna get super deep in one topic and not be able to branch out to other things? Am I gonna find that my skills are only suitable in the national security community? Um, 
I suppose that can happen, but that has not been my experience at all. My experience has been just the opposite. Well, and I just feel, aren't we all so lucky to work in this community? I mean, I think, you know, opportunities are what you make of them, right? And so I just think we've we've all been given this great gift to to serve our country and, and you've served it very well. So, um, so now comes my favorite part of the episode where I get to ask you if you could give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? That is the hardest question of this whole show. It's my favorite <laughs> I listen to other people. Okay, this is a little weird, but this is what I'm going with. Grace note. So first word grace, G-R-A-C-E, second word note. Here's why. Um, a few years back, um, another set of serendipitous circumstances. I picked up a bass guitar and learned how to play it. And uh, it is my favorite instrument now of everything I play. And you know, if you play bass, that the bass guitar provides, um, it provides the undercurrent that anchors most popular music, you know, jazz and R&B and, you know, rock and whatever. And um, it really ties the, the, the drums to the melody. So it's kind of at the heart of the music. Um, and anybody who plays bass knows that what you do is you play a lot of improvisation. You kind of know what the chord structure is, and then you kind of make up your own thing. You, you, you find a riff that goes around it and see what works until you move on to the next chord and the next and the next in the progression. And um, so that I think is probably the best metaphor for my approach to career. <laughs> which is what are the things that really matter? That's the chord structure. That's that underlying the, the heart of the bass rhythm. And then all the improvisation and the embellishments around it, those are the grace notes that give it color, that give it life, that give it a groove, that you know make each moment of the music what it is. So grace note. Wow, that that's a great, <laughs> I love it. And that that was, you really did some thinking with that, that I appreciate it. April, this was just so lovely. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, thank you for your service to our country. Thank you for sharing your story. And, you know, we hope that we can see you again soon and talk to you again soon. And good luck on the new job. And thank you so much. Thank you, Megan. It has been such a pleasure. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we'd like to thank Resolute Unicorn and Wise Wisteria for making this amazing series possible. We'd also like to thank Grant Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce and we'll talk next time.